From their studio in the Feeding Arizona building in Youngtown, Arizona, it's the Boomer and the Babe Show with Pete Peters and Deborah Brown. Join Pete and Deborah and their guests as they give voice to 78 million baby boomers from coast to coast and border to border. Now here are the Boomer and the Babe, Pete Peters and Deborah Brown. Yes, and good morning. It is the Boomer and the Babe Show. Coming to you on Tuesday, January 8th, 2013. It's 11 o'clock in the morning in Arizona, 10 o'clock in the morning over on the West Coast, the far West Coast, and the East Coast is 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I think I've got those time zones right. Uh, At any rate, this is, as I said, the Boomer the Babe Show, broadcasting from our studio in Sun City, Arizona. Uh, We're going to be talking with a a doctor today, a bariatric surgeon, so we're going to have an interesting conversation before we do that, I'd like to remind everybody to uh, take a look at boomerandthebabe.com, see everything else we're involved in, mini books, e-books, and also please sign up uh, for our mailing list, and you will be able to get Boomer Experience Speaks, our online magazine, uh, as it comes out every four to six weeks directly to your inbox, absolutely free, and we hope you'll sign up and take advantage of that. Many of the articles in there are written by radio guests as well as some of the other people that have their own shows on the Boomer and the Babe Network here on the Blog Talk platform. And as I said, I'm Pete Peters. Deborah Brown's not with me today. She's often uh, often busy, so we're going to be uh, talking to the doctor by ourselves. And the doctor is Michael Michael Faze. He's an MD. Uh, he's a bariatric surgeon. Welcome to the Boomer and the Babe show, doctor. Thank you, Pete. Thank you for having me. Well, it's it's my pleasure to have you here, and especially talking about uh, uh, what is, some have said, an epidemic, basically, uh, with regard to obesity and so on and so forth. And there are many other there are many ways to help people get uh, uh, relief from that problem. Uh, and I want to get into uh, several of them as we have our conversation today. But before that, uh, give us a little two-minute movie, if you would, about what you have done in the past. If you did anything before being a bariatric surgeon, you may have uh, worked in some other areas. What was it that prompted you to, to go into uh, into bariatrics, and um, uh, how long have you been doing it? Um, well, thank you, first of all, for having me on the show. I appreciate it. And uh, I agree, this is an epidemic, and I'm glad we're talking about it today. Um, I started my career studying first to become a general surgeon, and as I was studying to become a general surgeon, I had more of an aptitude and comfort with doing minimally invasive surgeries, which is doing surgeries with tiny little uh, incisions and uh, putting a camera in and doing the surgery from the inside rather than making a big incision, uh, what we call laparoscopic surgery. And um, as I progressed in that path and I became more and more comfortable and that's what I really enjoyed doing, uh, right around that time is when the emergence of weight loss surgery or bariatric surgery started. And that's when when they started doing those surgeries laparoscopically. Uh, It was probably the most challenging type of surgery to do laparoscopically. And because I had an affinity for it, I really enjoyed it. That's how I got started in bariatrics because I really enjoyed the laparoscopic surgery and it lended itself to that in terms of bariatric surgery is best done laparoscopically. But I think what allowed me to really become a specialist or an expert in bariatric surgery is because I understand the patient population. Uh, obesity is is not a type of disease that patients are eating because they're gluttonous. Uh, Patients who are obese are often obese the same way that a nail biter, for example, bites their nails. No one ever uh, blames a nail biter for being hungry or gluttonous when they're eating their nails. 
everyone understands that they're kind of coping with emotions such as anxiety or depression or uh, sadness, and that you know allow they soothe themselves by biting nails and the coping that way. Overeaters cope much the same way, and uh, it's not that they love the taste of food or they really, really want to eat so much. It's because they're coping much again the same way that a smoker smokes when they get angry or nervous or sad or depressed, or like a drinker who drinks. Overeaters turn to food. Understanding that phenomenon has allowed me to really make a connection with my patients and understand their struggles with being obese and overeating. Well, I know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, the first thing that happens to me when I uh, am stressed or uh, uh, I'm under pressure for something, I go and I open up the refrigerator. And I look in there and I say, well, that didn't change since five minutes ago when I looked last. Uh, and, and I either do or don't take something out of there. But I know, I, I know for a fact, and, I, and, I, and there's the term comfort food. Uh, that is is used with regularity, uh, eating the cooking shows and so on and so forth. One of them in particular, uh, there's this fellow that drives all over the country in his uh, uh, convertible checking out these various diners and whatever, and it's all comfort food. It's deep fried, it's stacked high, it's uh, got cheeses on it. I mean, it looks really good, but I mean, uh, and I think, most of the people that are in there probably have somewhat of a weight problem, and they're in there for the comfort that they derive from eating the food. Absolutely true. And then the other thing is there are two things in uh, our daily lives or our lives that actually releases the most amount of dopamine. Dopamine is a hormone that's released from our reward centers in our brain. And when dopamine is released, it makes us feel good. It makes us have a good feeling and a euphoric feeling. The two things that release the most amount of dopamine in our brain is sex and food. So you can understand that every time we eat something, we feel a little bit better. That's why sometimes, I'm sure you've heard about women loving chocolate and feeling orgasmic almost with chocolate and so forth. Food does really affect our feelings and our emotions as well. So when we eat something, we feel a little bit better and then we get into this pattern of not even knowing it or doing it subconsciously, but every time we feel we feel the need to feel a little bit better, we have a little bit of snack and a little bit of uh, something to kind of pit us up. Uh, how is it that you? Uh, I'm going to go back to your 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 history. How is it that you made a decision uh, through med school or whatever to become a surgeon, regardless of nature of the surgery? What what what? prompt somebody to say, I want to be a surgeon. The fact um, that you're going to cut somebody's body open, I, that just amazes me, that you come to that conscious decision. That's actually got a bit of a story behind it as well. Um, so when I was in med school, the one thing I knew I didn't want to be was a surgeon. And at the time I was engaged, and uh, going through surgery residency added an extra, on average, four years to your training. So if I wanted to be a Internist, it was, has about a three to four year residency. General surgery residency is six years. So at the time, I did not want to be a surgeon. I did my first rotation as a medical student, uh, was surgery, and my first day I'd never been inside an OR, I'd never been inside uh, the scrub my hands to go into an operating room or anything like that. And the first case I had uh, was about a 15 hour case, and um, it was a very difficult case, and the patient nearly died. 
as the surgery was happening in the middle of the case, the surgeon I was just kind of assisting as a medical student holding some skin back and so forth. And as that was happening, the surgeon got into some bleeding and the patient came very close to dying. At that moment, the surgeon pushed me over and suddenly started very vigorously reaching into the body and suctioning the blood away and so forth. And uh, I'm sure you know, but in the operating rooms, we often play music. And at that very moment, Bob Dylan's Knocking on Heaven's Door came on, and the anesthesiologist was pumping blood, and everyone was wearing their masks. And it looked like the surgeon was kind of had this surreal moment where it looked like the surgeon was stealing life from the angel of death and so forth. Needless to say, after that experience, I spent the rest of the year of my medical school when I had to choose what career I would take, trying to choose any other uh, path of life other than surgery. My fiancé did not want me to go into surgery and so forth, but I really couldn't. I, I had, was so changed by that, and the patient made it, and she walked out of the hospital and saved her life. It was such uh, an exhilarating moment, and I so understood it that after that, nothing else really had the same feeling for me than surgery. So it kind of chose me on that day, and after that I really had no other interest in any other part of medicine to choose as a career. Uh, I, I recently had a, an outpatient pr- procedure, and, um, and, and of course the, uh, the, the specialist or the, or the PC uh, says, well, we need to have this checked out, and it's, uh, it's determined that a, a surgery was needed, and you go to visit your surgeon. Uh, and what makes a surgeon... Uh, you say general surgery was was where I think you said you started. Uh, what makes a surgeon um, want to specialize? Uh, other than the fact that I realize you're you're specializing in bariatrics because of your feel for it and your laparoscopic uh, tendencies. Uh, but what makes a surgeon decide to do laparoscopy rather than, uh, as you said, uh, cut the body open? Well. It started out, it's it's much more common today, uh, but it started out when I was first training as more of a fringe, or it was it was a way of doing it, and it, it hadn't really quite uh, reached its uh, learning curve or the, the height that it has today. The main reasons for it, it, it's a natural way that surgery is moving forward in all uh, the fields of surgery. And the reason for that is because the smaller the incisions, the faster the recovery. The smaller the incisions, the less risk of having infections. The sooner you leave the hospital, the less pain you have in recovery. So anytime you make a big incision, you're adding about a week to the hospital stay and to the recovery state because those muscles and the skin and everything has to heal. So um, the reason that today pretty much all surgeries, if, if it can be done, if it lends itself to being done laparoscopically, it is the way that most surgeons try to do it if they can do it. It is a bit of a technologically uh, oriented field, so it has gotten better and better and better as time has gone by. Uh, The instruments have gotten more advanced, they've gotten smaller, they've gotten more capable in making movements. Uh, So pretty much I would say today most surgeries, most specialties try to do things minimally invasive I think I got a bit of a head start because um, my most favorite thing to do growing up was play video games. And I think that kind of prepared me for that in my career as well because laparoscopic surgery 
is like almost playing a very, very complicated video game because you're looking at a TV screen and you're making movements and watching those movements on a TV screen. It needs to have hand-eye coordination and a bit of a mind's eye to be able to convert a two-dimensional screen on the TV into a three-dimensional field, which is what the surgery field actually is. Uh, it, it amazes me to think that you're you're outside the body and you're putting this uh, device in there and and making your incisions and so on and so forth, removal of whatever uh, is is being taken out. And uh, the amazing the amazing thing to me is that how do you know that you are physically that your instruments are where they're supposed to be. I mean, you're looking through a scope, correct? Uh, and is the scope on a, uh, showing you the camera at the other end of your instrument? So the scope is um, a long... I'm sure you've seen the spy movies where they take a little uh, cable or tube and at the end of it there's a camera and they're able to look down and around corners and look you know, to the left and right, kind of like a colonoscope or an endoscope. It's the same idea at the tip of a long rock. It's a very high-definition camera, and that camera gives you a great view of the inside. We blow the inside of the abdomen up with air, actually not air, with CO2, carbon dioxide, and that allows a space inside the abdomen to work. Now, what you're talking about is actually very true. It's, it's tactile sensation. When you're touching uh, tissues and organs with your fingers, you get a sense for it. Well, that's actually very true with laparoscopic surgery as well. I've been doing this long enough that without seeing tissue, I can tell when the ends of my instruments are touching the consistency, for example, of one type of tissue, such as liver, versus another type of tissue, such as stomach. So do you still have tactile sensation, even though you're not touching the tissues? With experience and with time, those tips of those instruments become like the tips of my fingers. So... I'm looking at everything, and you actually have a higher magnification. You have much better of a view because everything is somewhat magnified, and you're looking at very high-resolution, high-definition videos on the screen that's live in real time. So uh, essentially, it's as if I am inside the abdomen, but without making the big incision. Now I've got a question for you. This, uh, I, I, I'm amazed at all of this stuff. Somebody told me one time that I should have been a doctor, and I don't know. I don't. I don't know that I should have been or not. But I, I am amazed by medicine and and, and doctors and surgery. Uh, if you have something to remove uh, that can be done laparoscopically, uh, let's say there's a tulip, uh, a tuna, a tuna. Hello, a tumor mm-hmm. or or a polyp uh, sure. of, of sure. some size of some size. Uh, how large uh, an object can you take out of the body laparoscopically? Well, um, pretty much any size, and I'll tell you a few tricks about that. So one of the most common surgeries that I do is a sleeve gastrectomy, and with that we're taking out about 80 to 90% of the stomach. So the average stomach is about the size of a deflated American football. Uh, so we take that out. And the thing is, those kinds of tissues, like the stomach or like other tissues, they're somewhat compressible and they're malleable. So you can kind of squeeze those out small through the small holes that we make. Now you have other types of organs, such as, for example, the spleen or the liver or other things that are solid. We call them solid organs. Those things are a little bit more difficult to take out, 
but we still are able to take them out. And some of the things that we do to take them out is by morselizing them. We actually have methods whereby if it doesn't need to come out as a whole piece, it's almost, uh, again, we use a lot of, and I, and I don't mean to um, gross out any of your listeners, but we almost have something that's like a brawn blender that you know is very small, goes into a special sack inside the abdomen where the organ is, and it kind of morselizes and makes the uh, organ into much smaller pieces, and then we slowly take it out with everything intact inside the bag. So um, we pretty much are able to take out most organs and most types of tissues. And even in that situation where we can't take it out and we have to extend our incision a little bit, it's going to be still much smaller of an incision to take an organ out than it would be to make a big enough incision for us to get in there and do all the work and to actually do all the dissection as well. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. So when uh, it, it used to be... Uh, uh, maybe it still is. I don't know that they used. There was a term, stomach stapling. Yes. Uh, is, is that is that what you're referring to here when you refer to the stomach situation? Uh, actually, no. Well, we are stapling the stomach, but when people talk about the stomach stapling, they are traditionally talking about the gastric bypass surgery. Ah. The gastric bypass surgery was the original or the first weight loss surgery that we had. And when we talk about stomach stapling today, most people are referring to that. Um, and that was an operation that we still do today. It's a gastric bypass. It's still a very good operation. However, it's an operation that includes both restricting what you can eat as well as changing and rerouting food such that you don't absorb everything that you eat. Because you're restricting what you eat so your portions are smaller and you're not absorbing everything that you eat, the risks of this operation, one of them is having malabsorption or vitamin deficiencies. Now, those can be uh, handled and overcome by taking a multivitamin every day and so forth, stuff like that. But the lifestyle of a gastric bypass patient is a little bit more complicated than the other surgeries that we do. The sleeve gastrectomy that I was talking about earlier, that is also a staple procedure where we're stapling the stomach, but we're not changing the continuity of the digestive system. You're still absorbing everything that you eat. You're still uh, eating in the same continuity. The food goes through the same route from start to finish, but we don't have a big sack for a stomach. We have a nice narrow tube for a stomach and uh, that allows us to lose weight without many of the complications or the side effects that come with gastric bypass surgery. So in that particular instance, people are losing weight just simply because they cannot eat as much. Is that the case? Uh, do you mean with the sleeve gastrectomy? Yes. Uh -huh. That's part of it. There's actually a little bit more to it than that as well. It's a very interesting part of our and uh, relatively new part of the weight loss community. So we have found hormones that actually cause hunger. One of those hormones is called ghrelin. Ghrelin is a hormone that's actually made in the fundus or the poofy sac part of the stomach. And the way that hormone works is that when we're, empty, when we're hungry and our stomachs are empty, that hormone it actually is released more into our bloodstream. That's kind of what causes your stomach to growl and causes your stomach to start moving around and you feel uh, those hunger pangs and so forth. That's actually, as a result, partially due to ghrelin. 
Now, we've taken ghrelin levels of patients without surgery when they're hungry and it's high, let's say it's in the 2000s. Then we take patients who have just eaten and they're satiated and they're not hungry anymore, and we take their ghrelin levels, and it's usually about, let's say, about 600. What we did is that we took that area of the stomach, the poofy portion of the stomach, and removed it in the sleeve gastrectomy. Then we checked the ghrelin levels, and the ghrelin levels actually dipped to below the levels of people who were satiated or no longer hungry. Now, this hormone, we think, has a big part as to why sleeve gastrectomy patients are more successful in that not only are they eating less because their stomachs are smaller and they have less capacity to eat, but also because because um, they have less desire for food. Not only is it that they're eating less, they don't have as much of the desire to eat in between meals. It doesn't change their hunger for food or their taste for food. It just makes it so that when they've eaten, they stay full for a longer period of time between meals. And we think that has a lot to do with the success of the sleeve gastrectomy as well. Okay, now, why is it called a sleeve gastrectomy? You know, there's really no good reason for that. Uh, some surgeons equated it to kind of resembling the shape of a sleeve when we're done. Again, the stomach kind of starts out as a uh, kidney-shaped type organ that uh, it looks like a deflated American football. Um, and when we're done cutting it, it looks like it would as a sleeve of a shirt. Uh, there really is no good reason for it other than the fact that the uh, people who uh, call the operation initially called it a sleeve gastrectomy. And that, and that is a laparoscopic procedure? That is correct. Wow, that's amazing. Now, is that the procedure of preference now? Uh, I would think it is. It, uh, it is relatively uh, more uh, newer, I would say, than the other two procedures. Uh, but we have 10-year data on it, and in the last several years, most of the bariatric surgeons across our country, as well as Europe, have started to do more and more and more sleeve gastrectomies. I think where it was about maybe 15 20% uh, four years ago, five years ago, of the number of weight loss surgeries done, I'd say it's well above 40 to 50% of all the weight loss surgeries done in our country this uh, this year. Uh, we have a, Deborah and I have a friend that has had lap band surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know much about it other than every now and then she has been said, uh, she has said, I need to get my band tightened. And I went, whoa, that sounds odd. Uh, what is that? Okay. Um, so the lap band surgery is a device that we place over the top portion of the stomach, um, right below the esophagus, which is a conduit or the tube that connects the throat to the stomach. Uh, And right below that, we make a small little pouch and we put the band around it, thereby almost like putting a belt around the stomach. By doing that, what we're doing is kind of changing the stomach into two compartments, a smaller compartment above the band and a a larger compartment below the band. The compartment above is about 25% or so big, and the compartment below is about 75% big. So it essentially changes the band, changes your stomach into an hourglass. 
once you eat food, the food kind of has a pit stop in the first compartment, the pouch, and it stretches the stomach and pushes on the nerves, kind of giving you the sensation of being full with a smaller amount of food. Then the food slowly passes the band, like an hourglass sand that slowly passes the narrow portion of an hourglass into, excuse me, into the larger compartment. That's essentially how the band works. It works by decreasing how much and how quickly you can eat at one time. And it also is meant to make you uh, stay full slightly longer as this food empties from the first pouch into the second pouch. Now, the band is very successful. However, it hasn't been the most successful operation we've had for our patients. And the reason for that partly is because the location of the band makes you susceptible to having regurgitation or having some food come up. Now, as we lose weight, just like we lose fat in our face, in our waists, in our uh, arms, and everywhere else, there's a little bit of fat that's around the stomach as well. As we lose that fat and as we, it melts away, the band becomes slightly larger around the stomach, so we have to adjust that band so that we still maintain that narrow passageway from the first compartment to the second compartment. That's what we call an adjustment. It's done in the office. It's no more painful than a bee sting or a vaccine injection. Uh, you walk in, you walk out at the same moment. It's about a 20-minute uh, office visit. Uh, it's relatively well uh, received by the patients, but you do need periodic tightenings and loosenings to maintain that nice narrow passageway from the first compartment to the second compartment. And, and how is it done? I mean, is there something outside the body that you like a string that you tug on it? No, no, no. So again, it's done laparoscopically. We make small, little, tiny incisions, and then we go inside and make the tunnel around the stomach so we can place the belt around the stomach. And then the little port or reservoir where we inject to tighten and loosen the band is going to sit underneath the skin, underneath the fat, but above the muscle, right next to the skin area. So it's not visible in your everyday activities, including being intimate. You don't feel it. You don't see it. But if you go looking and touching in that area, you feel a small little pea or an acorn underneath the skin. And that's what we palpate for uh, and we adjust. And it's just done from there. That's amazing, amazing to me. Uh, so is there is there a situation where uh, somebody is not... Uh, a candidate for any kind of weight loss surgery, or is anybody and everybody a candidate for weight loss surgery? Well, no. We reserve these surgeries uh, for patients that are obese and morbidly obese. Um, what that means is that they're, what we measure obesity in is in terms of height and weight. Uh, as you can imagine, a six-foot person who weighs 200 pounds is uh, one type of body habitus, and a five-foot person who weighs 200 pounds is another kind of body habitus. So the height and weight goes into this calculation. We call anyone whose body mass index is above 35 morbidly obese and is a candidate for this procedure. Uh, if they have other medical problems, such as high blood pressure, diabetes, sleep apnea, if their body mass index is above 40, we call that morbidly obese, that doesn't need to have any of the other uh, weight, pro uh, weight associated problems with it. Those patients, we think that the risk of being obese far outweighs the risk of any kind of surgery. 
which is relatively low with these procedures anyway. But those are the patients that we see are candidates for sure. Now, in the last uh, five to ten years, there's been a lot of work done at our National Institute of Health as well as in the FDA in terms of finding out the efficacy of these procedures for patients whose body mass index is between 30 and 35. And that also has shown to be effective and uh, is getting its uh, uh, due diligence in terms of finding out whether we should be doing it for everyone whose body mass index is above 30. In other words, this is reserved for people who are obese and morbidly obese. The risks of surgery isn't going to give us enough benefits for patients who are only 20 pounds or 30 pounds overweight. We generally look for patients who are significantly overweight. Uh, you're out there in California in, uh, uh, in Hollywood uh, area, I would imagine, somewhere near there. Uh, do you ever have people coming to you and saying, Doctor, uh, I want to keep my weight down. Can you uh, do something for me as far as a, uh, a bypass or a lap band or something like that as a professional uh, situation to help them maintain or continue to get parts? Um, you know, there are people who have thought about doing that. I personally don't think that that's a good idea. Again, we have to understand we are doing surgery here, and any kind of surgery does have risks and possible side effects and possible complications. Now, if you're someone whose life is being shortened because of being overweight, then those risks are worth worthwhile. If you're going to live 20 years or 30 years shorter because you are obese, then doing a surgery that has a 2 or 3% complication rate is worthwhile. But if you're someone who's healthy, who is doing it only for cosmetic reasons and only for other reasons like that, uh, the risks of the surgery having a bad outcome and the risks of going under surgery is not worth the benefits of looking a certain way. So generally speaking, uh, the bariatric community and, and my colleagues don't feel comfortable, and we don't do that uh, for patients that don't have medical benefits from doing these types of surgeries. So it's not the same situation as conceive could be conceivably done by uh, plastic surgeons when people want uh, stars or starlets want to have uh, higher cheekbones and ears pinned back and whatever. I mean, it's not it's not in that category at all. No, 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 no. It's 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 not something that uh, you would equate to liposuction, for example. It, oh, okay. it, it's more serious surgery. You are uh, going in and and and. Uh, Working with the intestinal tract, that's always a serious uh, consideration. Uh, it's safe. It's extremely safe. It's no more uh, complications than perhaps a colonoscopy in terms of the operative risks, but uh, it's not something that uh, most people are doing uh, as a cosmetic procedure. No, that would not be appropriate. I recently had a uh, an, out, an outpatient procedure that I may have mentioned along the way here, but um, I uh, I obtained a post-operative infection. Uh, really set me back. I mean, I was back in the hospital for a week trying to fight that thing, and uh, did. I mean, everything's fine now. But uh, my my question is, what is the frequency of post-operative infections, or is there a greater frequency because? You are dealing with the intestinal tract and so on and so forth, where there uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of things going on there, so to speak. 
that's absolutely true. And, and and like you said, it's a lot of things going on, and it's not no one can really say it's one thing or another. Um, the, there are things that uh, we as a healthcare community can try to prevent and try to minimize the risk. But even in the best situations, best hands, bacteria is pretty much everywhere, uh, both inside the intestinal tract as well as outside in the air and uh, surfaces and so forth. So luck has a little bit to do with it as well. Surgical technique and making sure that we disinfect and use a standard of care that minimizes infection, uh, that also is important. And then also, as you mentioned, the type of surgery that you're doing is also important. Anytime you're working with the intestinal tract, there's a little bit higher risk of having an infection. Uh, doing these surgeries laparoscopically and uh, doing them with staplers that don't allow any spillage or any of these uh, intestinal material to leak out, that has greatly minimized it. And although infections can happen in any surgery, in the types of laparoscopic surgeries that we do, it's almost almost not, uh, not I don't want to say negligible, but close to it. So the risk of having an infection, although it happens, is very rare and very low. Um, that being said, again, in the best of hands and the most careful hands, any time you break skin, there's a possibility of having an infection. So luck has a little bit to do with it as well. Well, either then I must be one of the unluckiest people in the world because I went in for a laparoscopic procedure to repair a navel hernia, and I came out, and a day and a half later I was back in, oh. not knowing who I was or what was going on because I was in such bad shape. I'm so sorry to hear that. Put another well, way Another way of looking at that, though, is that you're here healthy and safe and good today, so you were lucky in some ways, and it didn't progress well, to being worse. <laughs> that's, that's true. I, mean, I guess I guess uh, that's I, another way of looking at it, half full yeah, and half empty. You know, when you consider the option, <laughs> and people yeah. say to me, how are you doing? I says, I got up this morning, I put two feet on the ground, I could feel the ground beneath my feet, it's a good day. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's, it's all in how you look at things uh, to a great, great deal also. Now, let's talk about what I just said there. It's all in how you look at things. Uh, we've had several people on the show uh, over the peri- period of time that have uh, been great proponents of positive mental attitude, uh, helping yourself recover from illness or surgeries or whatever by the proper mental approach. Do you help people with that? Do you Are you a believer in absolutely, that Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. There's, uh, there's so much uh, of your recovery that has to do with positive attitude and with focusing on the positives and uh, continuing to heal in that way. Uh, that's one of the most important things, I believe, in terms of healing after any type of surgery. Uh, the body is going through a lot of stress, and the way you take that stress, as with anything else in life, has a lot to do with how you are able to survive it and get past it. Um, patients of mine that are um, a bit more negative and a, a bit more, um, how should I say this, they, they perseverate on, on certain symptoms that they have, those symptoms become all-consuming. All it, it makes the recovery slower. The ones that I'm able to uh, cheer them on and make them look at the brighter things and, and, and how things are getting better and how every day is an improvement tend to have a much faster recovery. 
So I definitely believe in the power of outlook and the power of uh, realization that things are getting better and, and things are moving in a positive direction. I definitely believe that that does help recovery and getting back on your feet quickly. I had somebody tell me, uh, I'm just interested in what you think of this. Uh, they said that uh, what you need to do, or telling me what I needed to do, was as I'm, as, as I'm being prepared for surgery, I should say to the physician and to the anesthesiologist, uh, something to the effect of, uh, we need to have this slight conversation, a short conversation, that I have complete and utter confidence in you, that you are going to make sure that I have the proper amount of anesthesia, that you're not going to over-medicate me, nor are you under, going to under-medicate me because you're going to be so alert during the surgery that I know I'm coming out on the other side just fine. And to the surgeon, you're basically saying, I know that you're a, a skilled and professional surgeon, and I know that you're going to do everything you possibly can to make sure that this goes well, and you're going to be very judicious and very cautious to make sure that I have the best possible outcome. And and you say that to them as you're going into the operating room before they start to put you out. And I'm thinking, wow, that's that's interesting because the person said to me, he says, now you've got them on notice. You've got the doctors on notice. And they are somewhat more invested possibly in you as an individual rather than as another patient who's coming in next after this guy. Is there any credence to that whatsoever in your opinion? Um, I'm not sure how I would answer that, only in the sense that I agree with it because that's what I do with all my patients. Um, uh -huh. Every patient that I see, I explain to them that they're in good hands. And it's not a matter of arrogance or ego. It's a matter of them having confidence. Patients need to know that when they're going in, that they're in good hands, that things are going to be taken care of. And it's not a promise to them that nothing bad is going to go wrong. It's a promise to them that I will get you through this and whatever wrong happens, I will make it right, and I will be with you until the end of it. Going into any situation, whether it be surgery, uh, whether it be uh, a vacation or anything for that matter, having trust and having uh, an underst understanding between the service provider for you and you means that you're going to feel comfortable. Anytime that you go through something like this in a comfortable way, you're going to have an easier, faster recovery, and you're going to not be as uh, anxious. Anxiety is one of the things that actually slows healing down. Knowing and having knowledge empowers you, makes you feel safe, makes you feel secure, and you need to have that conversation with your surgeon, not because it distinguishes you from the next patient or the previous patient, but because each patient is special and each relationship needs to have that specialness. It's a very big trust that you're giving a surgeon. You're basically saying, I'm going to let you knock me out. I'm going to let you put me asleep and then do whatever you want to me. And I trust that you're going to do what needs to get done. That's a big trust that you're putting into your surgeon. And you feel much better about it if you let them know that, hey, I'm putting a lot of trust into you. And you actually verbalize that. It makes you feel more secure. It makes you feel more empowered. Your recovery is going to be smoother. And all those things add to a faster recovery as well. So I agree with what you're saying. Absolutely, you need to have that kind of a connection with your surgeon. Well, that's why I'm not a surgeon. That, that's the, I just found the answer to all my years of talking with folks and people say, yeah, you should have been a doctor. You, you're really good at, at taking care of people. Well, I know why I'm not a surgeon. I don't want that kind of trust put on me. <laughs> I don't want that pressure on me. 
let's pay the let's pay the guys like you the big bucks so you can do it for me. Do it in my behalf. <laughs> oh my goodness gracious! I ne- I never thought of it that way. Uh, it's true. It's it's absolutely true. But the but the fact is, regardless of how simple the procedure is, and there's really no I guess no such thing as a simple procedure. It's all a procedure that it's a matter of degree, possibly. I, I would guess. Um, there's always the opportunity for something to go awry. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want that. I, I mean, I have enough trouble starting the pressing the buttons to do this radio show. But it's but also that, important to point out that uh, you know many of my mentors used to always teach me that it's not the clever surgeon that never gets into trouble; it's the clever surgeon who knows how to get out of trouble. So trouble and mistakes or complications or side effects might come. What's important is to know that it's going to be handled, handled effectively, handled efficiently, and that you get a good result. So, again, it's it's not that people don't make mistakes. Just like any other field, uh, bad things happen. It's what's important is being able to deal with those bad things and to have good resolution to them, safe and positive resolution to anything that might happen. I, I I think that's very well said. Very well said. Um, it seems uh, nowadays that there's all this information. As we started this conversation by saying about the obesity uh, epidemic in the country, there's a lot of emphasis on uh, children being obese. Uh, 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 President Obama's wife uh, is uh, involved a great deal in that, and there are others uh, on the, on television that are greatly involved in promoting uh, healthy eating and so on and so forth. Uh, when a child is obese or morbidly obese, uh, is it ever the case where that child would have uh, a stomach procedure, a bariatric procedure? Well, we try to separate when you say child. Um, for children, I would say no. The bare minimum that we would need to have for any of these procedures is to know that they have reached puberty and that they have uh, finished their uh, growth phases and the growth rates and so forth. Uh, so that kind of brings us into more of an adolescent possibility of having these surgery for adolescents. Firstly, let me uh, reaffirm your concern. Um, our adolescents are entering into the obesity fields much, much more and at a exponential rate yearly. I think we're getting close to 30% uh, adolescent uh, obesity and morbid obesity. That's alarming. It's it's growing faster than any other of our uh, age distributions. So your concern about the childhood, or I should say adolescent obesity, is very well placed. Now, uh, we've done studies to see if adolescents are uh, candidates for these procedures. And the answer is yes, uh, adolescents are candidates for these types of procedures, uh, because of many reasons. One is the fact that once you get to a certain size, it's very difficult to get back into healthy weights. The heavier you get, the more difficult it is to have activity, the more uh, pains and the more knee problems and stuff like that that you have. So it becomes a little bit more difficult. But in addition to that, what a lot of our adolescents suffer from is a social uh, ramifications of being morbidly obese, the social bullying and, and other things that come across with it. Now, I'm not trying to say that we should try to fight that by doing weight loss surgery, 
But I'm saying that all of those things, when considered together, it has been proven that these surgeries do help the adolescent population as well. Now, what we have to do is be careful and be sure that we're making these decisions for our adolescents carefully. We have to employ the use of child and adolescent psychologists, child and adolescent uh, specialists such as pediatrician, such as child and adolescent nutritionist, and we have to make sure that this is what we need to do and this is the right thing to do. But the benefits of it in the adolescent community has definitely been proven, and it's somewhere that uh, with each year that goes by, it is becoming less and less disputed as to whether it's going to help and whether it's helpful, but more importantly, to make sure that we're uh, applying the right uh, benchmarks and the right uh, pre-operative evaluations. I'm I'm amazed to I'm amazed to hear you say that it it it, it can in some cases be uh, be used for adolescents. I, I I had never thought of it before uh, that it, that it could be, uh, but it's interesting. It's it's very interesting if there if if all circumstances are correct, and that's that's obviously the the case with anything, but possibly even more so with adolescents, I would guess. Absolutely, yes. Um, now, uh, where do you see your patients from? Are you, uh, you're in Los Angeles. Uh, do your patients come from all over Southern California? Do they come from outside the area? Uh, what, how do you, who do you see? Um, well, we have a very large practice, and we have 14 locations throughout Southern California. Oh, wow. Um, in the, which, which keeps us quite busy. I think we're one of the busier uh, practices in terms of weight loss surgery, one of the uh, larger centers in uh, Southern California. But in the recent uh, couple of years, I've been getting more and more patients from overseas and from uh, other states as well. Um, so we get patients from all over the world, actually. Uh, we get patients from Europe, patients from the Middle East, uh, Saudi Arabia, and uh, Dubai, and places like that. Uh, we get patients from all over the world. And the sleeve gastrectomy is actually one of the things that has allowed for that more than anything else because many patients, it would be difficult for them to come from across the world to get a gastric band because often having someone who maintains and adjusts the band aren't going to be in their hometown. Whereas with the sleeve gastrectomy, once you have the surgery, you can be followed up by your own physician to make sure that you're healthy and your vitamin levels and your blood levels are in the right place so it doesn't need to have my supervised follow-up in the many years to come. Uh, but no, we get patients from all over the world. Are they are these surgeries covered by insurances and Medicare and things like that? Yes, that's that's uh, absolutely true. So these surgeries are all three of them, both the gastric, excuse me, all three gastric bypass, the gastric band, as well as the sleeve gastrectomy, are all covered by insurance companies. Uh, most insurance companies, I should say, uh, including Medicare. Uh, they have done a lot of the research, and the cost of the surgery, when compared to the cost of all the other illnesses that come with being overweight, such as high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, heart disease, uh, sleep apnea, all the other uh, bone diseases and knee replacements, all these things that come as a result of it cost much more for insurance companies and for our healthcare industry to uh, treat at a later time than it would be to prevent it from ever happening by doing a weight loss surgery. Uh, and that has been proven to be not only uh, life-altering in terms of adding years to people's lives, but 
it is the, one of the only things that has been proven to turn around such diseases such as diabetes. And always, when I say turn around, I mean people who are on insulin pumps and are pumping themselves and shooting themselves with insulin four, five, six, seven times a day, often with these surgeries go to not even needing insulin at all anymore. And that's one of the only things that has been able to prove uh, that we can cure such things such as diabetes with surgery. And that's one of the reasons why insurance companies do accept all of these procedures. So if somebody has uh, uh, blood pressure problems, uh, uh, has a enlar- and has an enlarged heart. Um, let me add. What can I add? Uh, uh, sleep apnea and um, obesity. Has all of those maladies. Uh, are they still a candidate for this uh, this sleeve this, uh, the sleeve procedure? You know, Pete. You just talked about pretty much all of my patients. Absolutely. Oh. These are these are all things that you mentioned that are, for the most part, at the very least, made worse by obesity, if not caused by obesity. So, uh, all of these uh, patients have one or many of the diseases you just mentioned, comorbidities, we call them, and we know that these not only get better, oftentimes get cured with the weight loss surgery. So I would say abundance, if not the bulk of our patients, have at least one or two of the uh, diseases you mentioned, and they are all candidates. And those those are the patients that need the surgery. Without it, they're going to dwindle. The diabetes is going to get worse. They might die from sleep apnea. They might have a heart attack. Their hearts continue to get enlarged. It's uh, it's it's uh, pretty much all the patients are going to end up down that route without the surgery. Uh, how long is uh, a person hospitalized with this surgery? Um, it depends. The sleeve gastrectomy and the gastric uh, band procedures can be done as an outpatient. And I was actually one of the ones who pioneered the sleeve gastrectomy as an outpatient basis. Uh, they are comfortable. They're able to drink the next day. They have the surgery, and they go home the next day uh, or the same day. The gastric bypass, because we're uh, rerouting the food and we have uh, some of the small intestines involved as well, that usually needs a one-night, possibly a second-night stay at a hospital. But the other two can be done as outpatient, and most of the most of them uh, that I do are done as outpatient. If a person presents to you saying they need to, they want to have something kind of some kind of a surgery to help them with their uh, eliminate their obesity, uh, how do you determine which procedure is best for them? Well, that's a great question. I actually don't determine it for them. What I do is I explain to them the risks and benefits for all the procedures, what it means to live with them, what their uh, role in the surgery is, what they need to do to maintain the surgery for the many years to come. I try to explain that to them as uh, as succinctly as possible, and then I leave it to them to decide, and I, and I try to make them decide as to what's best for them. There really isn't a best surgery. Any of these surgeries can fail without the proper life changes. That being said, like I said a little bit earlier, it seems to us that the sleeve gastrectomy gives us the most amount of success with the least amount of invasiveness. It has very few of the side effects in terms of long-term side effects like 
vitamin deficiency and so forth. At the same time, it has the most amount of comfortable weight loss. That, again, being said, I try to not push one procedure or another procedure because I think when the patient actually views their own life, listens to themselves and says, what kind of a person am I, they tend to choose what surgery is best for them. And we often tend to agree because most of my patients are choosing the sleeve gastrectomy these days, and I would tend to say that the sleeve gastrectomy is probably the most effective of the procedures these days. Wonderful. Absolutely amazing. I just This has been a, a fantastic conversation, and I'm looking here and I'm saying we're almost done. Uh, we're, we're almost going through the whole hour. And all this, and I didn't know what I was going to be talking about today. <laughs> uh, you've been an excellent guest, Doctor. Believe me, it's uh, uh, all great information. Um, I, I want to give you a call here after the show, uh, maybe on later on this afternoon if you're going to be available. I've got a number up here on the screen, so I, I'm assuming that's the, the best number to get hold of you at. Uh, so, and if it's not, I'm sure there's somebody that can refer me to you some other way. Uh, but um, there's some things I need to talk to you about after. We'd like maybe you doing a, 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 an article for us for our, our online magazine and things like that. Pete, I would be delighted to, and I'm always here, and I'm always available for you. So anytime you call, I will definitely be here to take the call. Well, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure meeting you on the phone and talking to you. And uh, uh, if I know of anybody that can use it, might be like me. Um, <laughs> I just may have to travel to California. Who knows? All right, sir. Thank you very much for again for being a guest. Uh, it's been a great uh, a great hour of conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me, Peter. I appreciate your time. Take care now. Take care. Bye bye. And we've been talking to uh, Doctor Faze, uh, Doctor Michael Faze, M.D., bariatric surgeon, about the various options for people that are obese through surgery that they can help them control their obesity and put their life back on track. Uh, that may be of benefit uh, to many people that are out there. And uh, if you need to talk to Dr. Michael Faze, I'm sure that if you were to Google him, Dr. Michael Faze, and that's F-E-I-Z, bariatric surgeon, you'll be able to find him. So with that, we'll say goodbye. Have a great day today. Join us again later in the week as we bring you some more shows to you. We're going to be doing our golf show on Thursday and a few other specials along the way. So please follow us on Blog Talk and uh, see everything else that we're going to be doing. So with that, we're going to say goodbye. Have a great day, everybody. Take care. interesting conversation to the world. Be sure to follow us on Twitter where we tweet as Boomer and Babe and on Facebook as Pete Peters 47. As always, you can friend us on Blog Talk Radio or sign up for our newsletter at boomerandthebabe.com. Email us at host at boomerandthebabe.com with any of your comments. Remember, at 50, you're just getting started. 